This is the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim, and I'm your host. This week, Steve continues his series on the Gospel of John. We begin with a reading of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Okay, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. And there were a set of six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that had now been made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called by bridegroom. He said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. All right. Thanks, Dana. So, he's gathered his first group or come to follow him, and now they go, and the next thing we see is he's at this wedding feast. This, um, as John says in verse 11, this is the first of many signs. It's actually the first of seven signs in John's gospel. Now, I want you to notice something, that nothing is wasted, okay? Uh, On the third day, a wedding feast took place in Cana. Well, on the third day, uh, we think of that as a day of resurrection. Some of you have noticed in your Bibles, I'm sure, third day, third day, third day, it comes through a lot. But there's another interesting layer to this. If you pay attention to the days that he gives us from when his account begins, This is day seven. If you put in all of what we got in chapter one, and now day seven was known as the day of fulfillment. Okay? So all of these little things mean something as we read it. The day of fulfillment, what could that be? I think it could be that the coming one that I referred to earlier from Deuteronomy 18.15, this time they were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Uh, John is saying, it starts now. There's a fulfillment. This is the first sign that he gives us. Okay? Now, this first event, the, the, the place where Jesus takes his disciples 
is not to a Bible study, is not to the synagogue, where's the first place he takes them? To a wedding feast, to a party. Did you know that in first century Palestine, boy, oh boy, we great now if we're going to pay for a daughter's wedding. Back then it was one week. One week and you just open it up to the community. So isn't it interesting that the very first thing that John gives us is Jesus bringing his brand new disciples to a wedding. A big, long, joyous celebration. Uh, Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. At that time, and go back, think of the word I just gave you. It's the seventh day fulfillment is what the seventh day is all about. Okay? Now, with that in your mind, Zephaniah 3. At that time, the Lord shall say to Jerusalem, O Zion, be of good courage. Do not let your hands grow slack. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty one shall save you. He shall bring gladness upon you and will renew you with his love. He will delight over you with joy as in a day of feasting. John is shouting by putting this as the first sign. This is the fulfillment, the joyous fulfillment of what everyone's been waiting for for centuries. So they're having a great time and then something really bad happens. The wine runs out. This would bring great shame upon the family in that culture. This is not all rats. I, could, I should have got some earlier. This is, this is an issue of great shame. And you know, shame is incredibly rooted. It's deeply rooted in our lives. It's, it's, it's part of the, the scar, the, the mark of the evil one. I mean, we've got, we've got a friend Rosalie here who's a counselor and she's nodding vigorously. Shame goes deep. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. And this would have brought great, great shame. I think shame, by the way, is directly linked to fear and to hopelessness. But you could ask Rosalie later when we take a break if, if she thinks that's right. So, it's a big deal. In our culture, we just go, oh, rats, you know, they ran out, out of the wine. No, it's a big deal. And so, Jesus' Jesus' mother, she, she immediately says they've run out of wine. And he says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, woman, we kind of go, oh, in our culture. But contrary to what some of you maybe even recently were taught, actually in that culture, the word woman was a term of great respect. It was a term of great respect. Okay? And uh, so Mary says to the, the servants, listen, just do whatever he tells you. And because uh, she knows, she knows that Jesus has incredibly deep compassion. His capacity for compassion is, is limitless. Maybe we'll talk about that further on in this study. And so this is the first time we see a pattern being established. And that is Jesus sees people's needs 
And he responds compassionately, but in ways that are unexpected. We're going to see it in chapter 4, we're going to see it in chapter 5, we're going to see it in chapter 8. He responds with compassion, but in ways that are unexpected. Okay? Now, again, this is the first sign. John's already told us this is the first sign. I wondered a lot. Jesus, why were you a bit reluctant? You notice he didn't say no. Compassion won out. Why were you a bit reluctant? I think it's because he knew, okay, now it starts. It's like game on, if I can say that without sounding totally disrespectful. Now it begins. Because he knew with this first sign being initiated, he knew it was starting a journey that would go uh, ultimately to Jerusalem and the cross. Okay? So that's why I think there was the reluctance. He understood everything from the beginning to the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And, and we're going to look more at this later. So then, when he makes wine, oh baby, does he make wine. Between 120 and 150 gallons of wine. Why does John bother with that detail? Remember, he doesn't waste a word. It's because this measurement reflects an astounding superabundance. I mean, who, who has serves 150 gallons of wine, especially later on in the celebration? It speaks of this incredible abundance. Jesus is demonstrating that he and the Father love all of creation abundantly. Abundantly. And that's what he's trying to say. And by turning it into wine, again, John is saying the messianic age, the age of the, the coming one, the Christ, the messianic age has just arrived. That's why he said this was the first of his sons. Let me read to you from Amos. I love Amos. Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. Again, you've got, Amos was writing about 750 B.C. And you've got him looking across time. I mean, the prophet's just writing layers and layers. But he was looking across to, to this inauguration of the Messianic age. And he said this, Behold, there's that word again. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What's he saying? He's saying in the age to come, in the messianic age, there will be an incredible super abundance. Um, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. He's talking about this is what happens when Messiah comes. There's this incredible fruitfulness. And by the way, this, this uh, verse in here, they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. Never forget, this gospel is written in the setting and context of, of an occupied people. The Romans occupied them. They had virtually no rights. It was a wasteland. And now the Messianic age has come. 
Do you see how much is in every verse in John's Gospel? This is almost exciting, right? <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Zimbabwe. This nation is undergoing radical change. With a new government, Zimbabwe is now open to the gospel and looking for help to once again become a prosperous nation. Impact Nations is taking a team to Zimbabwe from August 26th to September 7th, and we'd like to invite you to join us. You could be the hands and feet of Jesus as we bring medical attention, clean water, and the good news of the gospel to this hungry nation. To learn more, visit impactnations.org slash J-O-C. And now, back to Steve. Verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign. I want to say a couple of things about that. John is setting up a series of seven signs. I've said that. But they're like signposts. They're meant to take us on a journey of progressive discovery of who is this Logos? Who is this, the Word made flesh? Who is this fully God, fully man, this incarnate man? Second thing, these signs are moments when John 1.51 happens. He's just said a few days earlier, he said to Nathaniel and the boys, he said, you're going to see the angels of heaven ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He said, you're going to see it. You're going to see heaven break in. You're going to see the natural order get changed and messed with and amplified. And now only four days later, this is what's happening. Jesus is the intersection point between heaven and earth. We've got to get that. We've got to get that. I, I tell you folks, I've been doing a lot of writing on this lately. We have too small of a Jesus. We have a Jesus and we think His role was to get us to heaven. That's almost ridiculous. We have too small of a Jesus. We think He's a great teacher. We know He's the Son of God, but mainly He's a great teacher. No! He changes everything. He is the intersection point between heaven and earth. He is the one who brings ultimate reality. And that's what John is doing here. Okay? So it says that he performed this first sign. And then I love this. I have loved this for years. By this first sign, he displayed his glory. You see that in your Bible? He displayed his glory. I go, he made wine and he displayed his glory? But now I'm beginning to understand the incredible significance of this, some of which I just shared with you. More than any of the gospel writers, John writes in multiple levels of meaning. And I said, as I said to you before, if you count from the beginning of uh, John's account, it's now the seventh day. It's the day of fulfillment. And he sees the miracle of the wine not as, wow, he turned water into wine. That's not it at all. But it is a demonstration of His glory. His glory. That's a huge word. It means the weightiness of God. The weightiness of God's reality. It's a demonstration of ultimate reality. And even more than that, it points ahead to the last day when the glory of the Son will be fully revealed and we will share in His glory. All of that is in there where, where John says that this was the first sign and by it his glory was revealed. 
the wedding feast points ahead to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And probably we all know this, but I'll, I'll read the verses. It's John, oh John, it's Revelation 19, 6-9. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why He started this as the first sign. Weddings are a celebration of completion. Mm -hmm. Two lives come together, they're joined, connected, and they become complete, right? This is a celebration of completion, of unity, of inclusion. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with His singing. When, when I got saved 40 some odd years ago in the Jesus movement, we sang that all the time. I don't know if there's anybody else here who sang it. Phil's nodding his head. This first miracle, this first place that Jesus takes His disciples is rich, rich, rich with meaning. And I think this celebration is at the heart of the activity of God. He is a celebratory God. If any of you have been hanging around me for the last year, you know I talk about Him being a triune God. That again, we have, I believe, minimized the doctrine of the Trinity to it's a list. You know, sometimes you'll hear, oh, He teaches on the Father, then on the Son, then on the Holy Spirit. It's, it, yes, this is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And, and we need to understand that. I've been writing on that. But the point is, it is three in one. We do not have three gods. We have one God, but three distinct persons. And that personhood is reflected in this, in Zephaniah, in Amos, in, in, in rejoicing, in incredible joy and rejoicing. That is the activity of God. God is not like a trinity. He is trinity. He's, he, there's nothing else. He is trinity. And this trinity is this incredible, sharing, exciting, uh, rejoicing activity, and we are invited into it. This is what everyone was created for. This is what we receive. And this is what, when we get a hold of it, we give this away. Not just the four spiritual laws. <laughs> we give away this incredible, eternal, trying life that we are part of. And this is why Jesus began here with His disciples. He didn't begin with a teaching time in the traditional sense. He took them right into the eternal activity of the triune God. He took them right into the Messianic age when the fields, the hills will drip with wine. He took them into something that had so much deeper significance than being invited to a wedding reception. So, there's the first two episodes. I hope they begin to wet your whistle as to how deep and rich in meaning John's Gospel is and why, as I said before, he wastes not a word. Any comments? Any questions? Yes, Phil. So, 
That's fantastic. And but it says here in verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. That's very interesting because I thought they believed in him before. Ah. So did he have more disciples or did they just deepen their belief or what do you think? I, I'm very sure he, at that point in that first week, did not have more disciples. We have, those are the ones. I believe, I believe they're believing at a deeper level. Remember I said that what, what John's trying to do is take us, invite us into a place of going deeper and deeper in our own faith, in our own belief. And I think we got a taste of it right there. That's excellent. I never noticed that. So verse 11, and they believed in him, and yet we see at least in Nathaniel that he believed in him at one level, and now it's four days later, and it's, oh. This is why, remember in, um, in uh, Mark 4, the, the wind and the waves, right? And then he goes back to sleep and they go, who is this? What kind of a man is this? What matter of man is this? It's this growing, growing revelation of who he is. That's a great question. Never saw that before. Anybody else? Yes, Vicki. Um, you said that Jesus displayed his glory through this first sign. Yes. I guess my understanding of his glory is really limited because I'm having a hard time seeing that connection. Can you expand on the definition of his glory? Okay, that's great. Now, I, yes, um, that, that you're having a little hard time getting the connection of how did this miracle display his glory? Well, let me try to go back at it again. Because, because the prophetic significance of this, going back to Amos, going back to Zephaniah, and those are just two that I gave, and, and going forward to the great Lamb's Feast. By the way, just as an aside, uh, in, in first century Palestine, the Lamb was understood, even outside of Christianity, was understood as being a sign of the, the final coming of everything, the summing up of everything. The, it displayed his glory because, let me try to find another way to say it than how I just did. Because it reflected the activity of the Trinity, I believe. Because it, it was a, a fulfillment of the Messianic age. And because that messianic age is described in so many places, by the way, just as an aside, um, Isaiah 2, 2 to 4, Micah 4, I'm not just sure the verses, but in the first five verses, talks also their presentation of this messianic age. It's a time of peace. That's where the, you know, the, the plowshares and so forth. It's a time where there is abundance and everybody lives under his own vine. Everybody gets to eat what he had. That, that the prophets in many different ways have said when the messianic age comes, it will be a time of superabundance. It will be a time of joy and celebration. And that's why Jesus came into that, did this incredible miracle. They'd never seen anything like it. And to, to really to say, what I told you a few days ago is true. I'm the connection between heaven and earth, between ultimate glory and earth. Does that help? 
Okay, great. Any other questions? Yes, Jerry. I have one. If it was not his time, why didn't he do it? He says this isn't my time, but then he flips right around. But then he did it. Why does he do that? That's a great question. That's such a great question. I don't know, but my theory is, I think Papa said, do this one, son. That's what I think. It's just like the Syrophoenician. It could be after he said, no, I've come for the lost heart of Israel. And, and, but even the, the dogs get the crumbs, remember? And he changed, remember, in uh, Matthew 15? I think that's a possible interpretation of that. Um, he says in, uh, I believe it's in John 7, everybody goes to Jerusalem, and he says, I'm not going. They leave, and then he goes, and then he went. I think these are episodes where we're getting a sense, which will develop here too, of him abiding, of the son who only does what he the father saying, John 5, 19. Um, but I don't know that. It's like I don't know what he wrote in the, in the dirt in John 8 either. <laughs> but, but it's a great question, and it's one that we think about. I think it's that. I think, I think father, God the father said to God the son, it's time. But the significance for me is that nobody around, they're thinking, help with the wine. Like his mom probably saying, I know he could do this one. But she, there, there's, I don't believe there's any way she's saying, I'm asking you to now step into your messianic call. I'm asking you to reveal your glory. I'm asking you to begin the journey that's going to end at the cross. I don't think any of that was happening, but he knew it was. Good question. Any other questions? Mm. Okay? Well, great. Um, thanks. Do you guys want to come back and do it again next week? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. I'll come back too then. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next week when Steve teaches John chapter 3. In the meantime, don't forget to send your questions to podcast at impactnations.com and stop by and visit our website at impactnations.org. 